Welcome to Blue Collar Zen. We hope you enjoy these tales and conversations recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Where are hell and heaven? A master named Lanhyo studied together with Venerable Wisong under Master Nangji at Bogasa Temple. One day the master called his two disciples, disciples and said, I have nothing more to teach you. You should now travel to Bekche. The students inquired, You said Bekche? But to which town? And whom should we seek there? The master replied, You should go to Mount Godalsan in the Wansaju region of Bekche. There you'll find preceptor Bodak. He has left his home in the north and taken refuge in the Bekche kingdom. He is currently teaching the Buddha Dharma in that place. Go there and learn from him. One you ask, Master, but isn't Bekche the enemy of us here in Shilla? Master Nangji responded, Listen carefully. There is no boundary that divides the Dharma into enemies and allies. Buddha taught that we must love and care for all sentient beings without forming distinctions. One should not harm any tiny insect in the grass, never mind killing a fish or animal. How could one discriminate among people and divide them into enemies and allies? Pack your belongings and leave this place. Be very careful of the soldiers guarding the fortress against thieves and fire. Take extra care not to be seen, traveling by night and hiding in the forest during the day. Yes, Master, we will be careful. The two started out. We sang was eight years the junior of Master Wanhyo. They followed Master Nanji's instructions and made their way to Bekche in search of preceptor Bodak. Within a few days of their arrival in Bekche, the two monks were caught by Bekche guards who had hidden near the border and after pilfering food from local farmhouses. At the time, there were three separate countries in the Korean Peninsula, Koryo to the north, Shilla to the east, Bekche to the west. The three were constantly fighting, struggling to expand their territory and power. They were all arch enemies of each other. Swinging his sharp dagger, the patrol leader threatened them, saying, You two are undoubtedly spies who have secretly infiltrated our territory. After you are questioned, you will be beheaded. Wanyo Sunam answered him calmly, we are Buddhist monks on our way to visit Preceptor Bodak. We've come to receive teachings from the Master, are in no way spies of Scylla. Shut up, 
We've already caught several spies who are disguised as monks with shaved heads and Buddhist robes. Wanyo replied, Take us to Preceptor Bodak and let us be questioned by the master to see whether we are Buddhist monks or not. Perhaps we will allow that. But once you've been proven to be false ascetics, you will not escape death. Wanyo and Wisang Sunam were taken straight to Preceptor Bodak, bound in ropes. Upon hearing the story from the army officer, Bodak took a close look at Wanyo and Wisang and spoke to them with a stern face. I will ask you one question to ascertain whether you are Buddhist monks or impostors in disguise. Wanyo Sunam bowed his head and placed his palms together. Yes, Venerable, please continue with your question. Glaring at Wanyo, the master asked, Where is the pure land? Where is heaven? Where is hell? Where are heaven and hell? Are they up north or in the south? Do you find them to the east or to the west? Wanyo Sunam answered determinedly, Heaven and hell cannot be found in any of the four cardinal directions. If they are not in the four directions, then where are they found? Master Bodak asked. Heaven and hell are in your mouth, Master. In my mouth? Yes, Sunam. If you say we are false monks, we will suffer and be beheaded. If you say we are genuine Buddhist monks, we will go to heaven, where we may cultivate the path to enlightenment under your guidance. Therefore, heaven and hell both come from your mouth. Master Buddhak laughed delightedly. Ha, ha, ha! He firmly spoke to the patrol leader. These two men are genuine Buddhist monks, not spies. Undo those ropes immediately. In this way, Venerable Wanhyo and Wisang gained the opportunity to study under Preceptor Bodak. Having decided to further their studies in Buddhism, after a few years, the two set out for the Tang Dynasty in China to pursue Buddhist training and meditation practice. They decided to walk through the land of Koryo and along the Liadong Peninsula to enter China. Well, that was a great story, Sunam, about heaven and hell and where it comes from. Well, I think it kind of fits with what I was speaking to you about with uh, the philosopher Kant. And for those that don't recall, which I did until I read about it this week, that Kant uh, thought of himself as the second coming of Copernicus, uh, who thought that the earth revolved around the sun when everybody else up to that point thought that the sun revolved around the earth. And what Kant said is that uh, Nothing exists without the subject 
and we could call the subject what I've referred to over the years as the I am self. So the formula for uh, seeing that clearly is a direct spiritual practice that we teach in Zen, which is allows the individual self to step aside long enough for us to see that nothing, absolutely nothing, in the material world is permanent. And that's, you know, called the doctrine of impermanence. We are subject as a body to this law of impermanence. Even what we consider the individual mind is subject to the law of impermanence. So, you know, Buddhist question is, what isn't subject to the law of impermanence? And that's the truth of uh, your nature. Yeah, it was it was great when Wanyo told the master that heaven and hell came from his mouth. That was such a such a stark reply and a demonstration of the immediacy of his experience. It was so true. Yeah, if the master says yes then he's in heaven. The master says no, then he's in hell. Well, and in a sense that when the master asks uh, such a question, he's uh, functioning uh, from the world of the sentient being to test the monks. Right. And Huan Yo caught it. Yeah, I think in general it seems like if you are attempting to get anywhere in spiritual practice, at least in my own case, you can really hit your head, hit your it's like hitting your head against the wall until you finally get to the point where you allow yourself to become vulnerable or open. And I found that in Wanyo's response to Master Bodak, he was absolutely uh, giving all of the power to the Master, completely submitting, and acknowledging that, in a sense, self and other are not, diff not two, not different. The Master was God at that moment. Really interesting to me. And then you can't really fake that. I was thinking, yeah, you could say that. You know, I'm a pretty smart person. There's a lot of smart people in the world that could maybe could have come up with that answer, you know, or something similar. But you, in that situation, you really have to mean it. Well, and, you know, when you face a master and uh, you're asked a question like that, 
um, you can't have pre-planned that. <laughs> right, yes, exactly. Right? So when we do koan study, you could pre-plan an answer if you've been working with the koan, but right. what would happen at some point, rather than just saying no, the master might say, okay, and then ask you another koan, and, and now you don't have any time to work on it, and use the same tactics that you used to accomplish the koan right. that you thought about for years, a really good answer, right. but now there's nothing left. Right. And when that space occurs, it means that there's no unconditional spontaneity. Right. And that's a sure sign that the, the person does not know who they are. Right. Yeah, I've always felt that it would be uh, inappropriate, but to the point of very disrespectful to try to prepare an answer to a koan or a huadu. Um, because essentially it seems that what you're being asked to do is to be perfectly honest. And if, you know, it's like if someone said, will you marry me? And in order to, you know, protect your their feelings or their feelings, you said yes, but you really meant no. You know, it'd be a really terrible thing to do. Mm. And I've always had that feeling um, in my study, not only with you, but um, you know, limited amount of situations with other teachers where I've been asked huadus or koans, and yeah, it's very vulnerable. It really feels like you you need to be prepared to reveal where you're truly at and not where you would like yourself to well, be. Well, I think you said it earlier, uh, being honest. Yeah. And when you say... Uh, when you speak honestly, then you you give uh, the teacher uh, an opportunity then to see your mind mm. and then to help you, guide you further along mm. uh, in your spiritual practice. So yeah. sometimes that's very abrupt and sometimes it requires, you know, something, something longer. Yeah. But it's always based on that particular time and place. Right. Yeah, it occurs to me that it's it's really hard to teach someone who thinks they're an expert. Well, and in our culture, it's we're trained. You know, I think we're conditioned to to feel that we we need to have the answers, and so I think that really <laughs> sort of plays against us when we take up something like Zen practice. Um, but. Can you talk a little bit about who Wanhyo was? Do you know much of his story? I know that he's uh, a central figure in Korean uh, Buddhist culture, and I wonder if you well, share some things. Well, I think that you things. know he's he's uh, considered to be um, the first enlightened Korean. So. His story, which we're going to reveal further in subsequent broadcasts, uh, show the depth uh, of his mind and actually almost exactly how it was revealed to him. And uh, the story is, is a, 
it's a folk tale in Korea. Hmm. I, when I was there, there I never, I never saw it, but I heard there was even plays and films about uh, Hwanhyo's, uh, in particular, emphasis on his travel to the uh, Tang Dynasty, right, and then returning to his homeland, uh, as what came to be understood as an awakened being. So he's yeah. very, very important in uh, in Korean cultural Buddhist history. Yeah. When I was studying in Korea, one of the monks, um, the abbot of Chogesa, one day said, Myungju, let's go. And I said, well, where are we going to go? He said, we're going to uh, to the opera. And I thought that was interesting. So we went and... We went into the opera house and there were hundreds and hundreds of monks, maybe a thousand monks, in the audience. And it was the an opera about Won Hyo's life. Mm. And uh, it was great. I think before that I didn't know much about the story of Won Hyo Sunim's travel and his enlightenment. But it was really beautiful. And I realized in that experience just how much he meant to Korean uh, Buddhist monks and the tradition itself. Well, not just Buddhist monks. I think that if you talk to, I mean, I, I was there at a different time, so I would say now you'd have to talk to people uh, at least over 40, maybe even over 50. And at that time, when they were even young children, they all knew uh, the story of Huan Yo. Right. And and his enlightenment. And the story, I think, was probably told hundreds of thousands of times, parents to children, and mm. uh, th when those children grew up and, and, and told their children about it. Yeah. Uh, it was quite, it's quite delightful. It's, it, yeah. It, it, I guess, could be viewed the way that we view fairy tales, except it, it's not a fairy tale. Nobody made it up. Uh, and and the the whole premise of uh, Buddhism is resting on enlightenment, which he was the first to uh, realize, according to Buddhism. Can you think of anything since you were brought up Catholic? Can you think of any stories and or folk tales within the Catholic Church or in our own culture that sort of parallel the story of One Hill? Does anything come to mind? Well, I'm not a very, uh, you know, you say I was brought up Catholic, but I would say that um, <clears throat> I, I wasn't, I had periods of time where I was trying to invest some time in uh, what the Catholic Church was teaching. And I can't remember any particular story, but I remember uh, you know, asking, and I was already an adult in a catechism class with uh, children, and the priest, he was actually a Franciscan monk, said, uh, everything is God. So my hand shot up and I said, is this table God? And then he didn't answer me. 
uh, he just kind of, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he certainly answered me in a way that I've over the years described as having an extreme itch on the bottom of my foot. And he itched the bottom of my shoe. Yeah, that's not very relieving. I couldn't feel anything <laughs> right. from his response, but I right. was still intrigued that God is everything. Right. And it was only after I came to Buddhism and could interpret that it's absolutely true. Yeah. But the words confuse because maybe people even listening to this podcast will suddenly have a subjective view uh, or an objective view that somebody else provided for them of what God is and isn't. Right. Uh, but the truth is that uh, for everybody, God is a mystery. And it's really important that it's a mystery. And only the great saints, uh, we think, have uh, acquired that relationship. And how do we know? We look at their lives. Mm. Like when, when you look at Mother Teresa is an example that I often use. I mean, who would choose to pick up bodies that are close to death or sometimes even dead people mm. to, 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 to give them a proper a burial, yeah. proper care before they died, yeah. knowing that, that most of them were going to die. She wasn't of the illusion that she was going to save them. Right. And so that, in my period of time, her story would be one of those stories. Yeah. Like the, the thing I remember about Mother Teresa in her instruction to the nuns, let the people eat you. Right. She was suggesting, be the sacrament. Right. Be the body and blood of Christ and give yourself to those. Well, that would be good advice in Buddhism. Mm, absolutely. You mentioned a bit earlier in the conversation uh, this reference or this, uh, this way of describing our individual selves as the I am self. And I remember the first time that I heard that expression. I think it was coined by uh, one of your teachers and my teacher, Sasaki Roshi. Yes, I think that's true. And it's interesting. It was when I first met Roshi and heard that, it, it was, yeah, it was 20 years ago. And I was pretty young. And I remember not being able to relate to that expression and just feeling really perplexed. You know, what does he mean, I am self? Would you have been better served by the word ego at that time? I. Th I think so. Yeah. I think ego, maybe, I had heard the word ego, you know, yeah. in, you know, university classes or, you know, growing up, it's a pretty common expression. Right. Or somebody's egotistical, that sort of thing. But what I would say is, I think I am self, it's good in the same way that God is a mystery. I think it's a very good expression because it is paradoxical and it really gets you 
grinding a little bit, you know, asking yourself, what is the I am self? And I remember what Rosha used to say almost daily was, we have an uh, unquestioning acceptance of the I am self. It's as if we're mm -hmm. holding something and we don't know we're holding it. Mm -hmm. Like walking around with your cell phone, you know, day in and day out, not even realizing it's become attached to you and not able to put it down. And so it was a really important part in my training when I began to be able to begin to see what it was he was referring to. That this self I've come to take for granted is a projection. It is not my true nature. It's not who I am before. There, there's, a, there's an experience to be had before the self exists. You know, I don't know, I guess we could, it's difficult for me to express what I mean here. So I wonder if you could open that term up, I am self, for for me, but also for people who may be listening here. What, how do you relate to that expression, the I am self? And how do you relate to uh, it in terms of spiritual practice? Well, this is probably a long time ago, and you don't remember, but before I studied with uh, Sasaki Roshi, my term was I myself. I do remember that. Yeah. And even I would add to that the me in me, yeah. to, to try to explain it. Yeah. But I think the question <clears throat> isn't so much trying to understand the I am self or the ego or the me in me, but to discover where it comes from. Okay. That's that's the heart of the matter. That's what the the the, the huadu, uh is driving toward. And in in Zen, all of Zen is moving toward that, knowing where the self comes from. Where the uh, where walking comes from. Like we think nothing of walking or sitting or talking or doing anything. And this is, in fact, the activity of our Buddha nature. Yeah. Which we incorrectly think is I myself. Yeah. Is me individually. And then we're immediately separated from the world around us, which, of course, is fantasy. It's the dream. Yeah. Right? Just like we dream at night and we don't realize we're dreaming so we get caught up in the importance of the dream or the, the anger of the dream or yeah. in the fear of the dream. Yeah. And, and yet when we wake up and we really literally call it waking up. Yeah. We don't we, most people, I mean, there are some that try to make, make dreams real, but for the most part, we wake up and recognize, oh, I dreamt last night. Well, in a way, this human life is, is also a dream. Nothing is real. That, that means everything is impermanent. Right. We, it doesn't mean we go around treating people like they're not there. Right. But we recognize that when we're facing each other, yeah. In our in, in Buddhist culture we say 
everyone is a Buddha. Right. So even when somebody wrongs you, right, getting mad at them <clears throat> and think of them as a bad person, of course, we, the, the wrong actions are not proper and we have to do something about that. But we usually don't strike back at the person. In Buddhism, you're saying. Right. Yeah. Right? We recognize that it's just a Buddha that's living in ignorance. Or one of the three poisons, which yeah. the three poisons are greed, anger, and either delusion, which includes ignorance. Yeah. Well, I can definitely, you know, I think a lot of people can. I know I can really relate to that situation where you have an encounter with someone, and it may even be someone that at other times you have quite wonderful feelings toward. And then they do something or they say something or you have an inevitable disagreement. And suddenly your mind, right before your eyes, turns them into a demon. So they've gone from, you know, an, an angel or just a neutral person in your emotionals uh, to your emotions to suddenly this really negative force. Okay, wait a minute now, wait a minute. Yeah. Because you made a really good point. <clears throat> <clears throat> you need to follow through on it. Mm. When you see a demon, you're looking through demon's eyes. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? You that's know, really important. I I totally <clears throat> get that. And that's right. You have actually become the demon. And if you check in with your own emotions, you realize it's all coming from you. You know, you... If I had a you know a crayon or a marker, I would and I was told to paint my emotional state. It would be red, you know, it'd be the color of fire. And what I did when we set up this podcast, um, Blue Collars In, I did a a bit of an introduction. And one of the things that I was saying in there, and it's reminding me of what you're now teaching. So I'm really glad that you're bringing this up. Is that your teaching has always been, and the teaching of every teacher I've ever been with, has always been really consistent around this, that when you have a negative emotion, especially if it's around another person, you can't change it. You can't change whether you're a demon or they're a demon or whatever you know the situation is. Um, there's no way to directly confront that emotional state. But what you do is you treat them, you endeavor to treat them as if they're a Buddha. And I have really struggled with that practice. You know, maybe it's the judgment, the judgmental side of me or the know-it-all. But the but, thing is, yeah. that's how you demonstrate uh, your Buddha nature. I, I see that. And right? I, yeah. Human beings never act outside of their Buddha nature, whether they're acting ignorantly or the way you could say it, that Buddha would act or Jesus yeah. or some great figure. Yeah. That, that's the important thing to understand. And when you're in a community of people yeah. that recognize when you strike like that, yeah. you turn into a demon, Right. they have a lot of difficulty respecting your spiritual practice. Absolutely. And I, I think some, yeah, I have had to reap the, the karmic uh, fruits of that type of negative behavior in well, my life. Well, we all have. That's, yeah. that's part of being human. Absolutely. But if you are truly in a community of, 
of, of people that are seekers after the truth. Yeah. We forgive. That's we really, forgive each other. Well, thank you, Sonam. That's really sweet to hear. And, yeah. Like everything comes from the same source. It's only when we take that subjective, that I am self view, that we put it into a perspective that now is no longer based on the truth. It may be the relative truth in the human world, but it's not the truth uh, of, of human nature itself. And that's what people are struggling with. Like everyone wants to be happy and joyful, but if they don't discover who they are, which in Buddhism we say that you are already a Buddha, that you will never, ever reach happiness. And you, I could insert the word God in that or any of the religious figures that represent truth. Mm. We have to experience the truth directly for ourselves or we'll be forever seeking happiness in all of the wrong places. Well, like in our world, we're in a capitalistic society, and I think it's fair to say that a great number of people are seeking their happiness through what they can get in the material world. Mm. And, and some are more successful than others, but nobody in that world is successful at realizing who they are and, and really realizing true peace. Well, thank you, Sonam. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you.